I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Dr. Steven Betzruchka, an emergency physician turned population health doctor, joins us to discuss his recent book, Inequality Kills Us All, COVID-19's Health Lessons for the World. In this conversation, we'll be discussing the social factors of health outcomes with a focus on how structural violence and social murder are wrecking our well-being. And in case you're unfamiliar with those two aforementioned concepts, we'll get into that in the course of our conversation and unpack what they mean. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. And with that being said, let's get right to it with Dr. Steven Bezruchka, author of Inequality Kills Us All, COVID-19's Health Lessons for the World. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very excited to be speaking with, Dr. Steven Bezruchka, author of Inequality Kills Us All, COVID-19's Health Lessons for the World. How are you doing today? Um, quite well, thank you. And you? I'm I'm doing great, and I'm enjoying the book. I'm still working through uh, some of the chapters in it, but I, I think it's a really important book, uh, especially at this time. And I think the title really stands out: "Inequality Kills Us All." Because, you know, I think a lot of times we think of, you know, health issues as being all about the individual. Uh, and we don't think of it in social terms. Uh, I guess we'll get into that during the conversation. But just for people that are new to this book, uh, how would you describe the thesis of Inequality Kills Us All? 
So uh, to begin with, let's uh, consider health. What does that mean to us? Uh, it varies tremendously. Uh, you know, it's a part of our daily greetings. We say to somebody, how are you? And uh, that's implying, you know, how, how well are you? And uh, the responses are usually fine or okay. I had a friend once who, uh, when I asked him that, an old climbing uh, friend, he said, I have cancer. Well, our responses are rarely that accurate. So how well are you? It's a subjective feeling. What is, um, how, what impacts that? We tend to think that it's our personal behaviors and seeking medical care. If we do all, if we exercise and eat right and don't smoke and wear a condom, uh, those are important admonitions. And if we see a doctor when we're sick, turns out that the country you live in matters more for your health than the personal behaviors or medical care. And uh, the title kills us all um, implies that we don't live long lives in the United States. And that's, you know, the evidence, if you ask that, um, life expectancy, a measure of average length of life, is uh, easily tabulated. And uh, news reports will say our life expectancy has dropped or it's behind so many nations. But the significance of that is never discussed. And making comparisons with other nations is never discussed. Uh, so I coined the term Health Olympics um, some years ago. Suppose we're health, so countries compete in the Olympics. And suppose health were an Olympic event, and the race was how long you lived. Um, and you know, the measures are there. The average length of life in the United States is now about 76.2 years. Turns out 45 or so other countries, people have longer lives than we do. So if the race was how long you live, we would have been disqualified in the trials. We wouldn't be there for the final day's race. So making comparisons with other countries I think is the standard we should hold ourselves up to. Yesterday in the State of the Union speech, uh, our president only one, made one comparison. He said, we used to be number one in infrastructure, and now th we are number 13. If he said, uh, well, in the 1950s, we were one of the longest lived countries in the world, but now we're number 44. Uh, according to the United Nations Human Development Report tabulation. So we don't, we don't live long lives. Where does inequality comes in? Where does inequality come in? Turns out that when you ask the question, uh, how am, what does economic inequality do, uh, you, with my students, I usually go back to uh, the U.S. Surgeon General's report published in 1964 titled Smoking and Health. Back then, a lot of people smoked. Uh, you know, I worked as a doctor for many years. I never recommended that my patients smoked, but back in the 60s, uh, 
you know, doctors advertise certain brands of cigarettes as being uh, easier on your throat. Well, so the Surgeon General came out with this report saying that smoking was bad for you in 1964. There already had been uh, many studies going back to the 1920s saying this was so. Uh, so the report laid out the conditions to say that uh, smoking caused worst health. And the conditions were many studies by many different investigators on different uh, populations showing the relationship. Uh, the chicken or egg uh, issue, did you get sick and then start smoking or did you start smoking and then get sick? Were there better explanations? And finally, was there biologic plausibility? Namely, uh, are there reasons in our biology, our physiology, that make smoking bad for you? And all of those are satisfied for inequality, economic inequality, income inequality. So um, inequality kills us all, I think, is a very telling statement uh, and uh, and the reason it kills us all for living in the United States um, the longest lived person the oldest old as being one measure is never in this country they always live somewhere else uh, if the United States was so healthy surely at some time the oldest old person would be here so even the rich, uh, even those who have too much, uh, face the mortality of inequality. So it's interesting, at the beginning of your book, uh, you write that the book is dedicated uh, to all the victims of uh, social murder and structural violence. Um, I think those are two very interesting uh, terms and concepts. And I think sometimes in America, we don't think about those concepts. So maybe we could talk a little bit about what is social murder or social death and structural violence. So let's take structural violence. Violence is sort of an injury. And uh, typically in such violence, uh, there's a person, a perpetrator, there's an event, there's uh, a a gunshot wound, there's bleeding and uh, bad outcomes, uh, the smoking gun, so to speak. And we have, you know, the, those don't even make the news anymore. You know, mass shootings are almost a daily occurrence. Well, they are a daily occurrence in this country. Structural violence is different. If inequality is bad for us, if it causes conditions that lead us to an early grave, that's violence due to the economic structure of society. There's no, uh, there's no uh, person who is pulling the trigger. Uh, there's no weapon, and uh, and there's no uh, bleeding that is obviously connected to the event. And if you tally the deaths due to inequality in our society. Uh, it depends on how you estimate it, but uh, uh, maybe a million deaths a year out of our two to three million deaths can be attributed to inequality. And so um, that's certainly violence, and it's caused by the economic structure of society. And uh, social murder is a term coined by Engels oh, about 150 years ago, uh, Marx and Engels in uh, uh, 
and and they and and Engels was looking at poverty conditions in England, and he realized that the poor died younger, and it was because they were poor, and so um, it was murder because societal conditions, social conditions, made them poor, and they died. So. Social murder is an older term for structural violence. Uh, that term was coined around 1969. And, and it's the leading cause of death around the world. Um, there's a variety of ways of trying to depict it. Uh, if, yes, so if we take the 9-11 World Trade Towers collapse, there were less than th uh, 3,000 deaths in that incident. About 3,000, let's just round up. Uh, and of course, we invaded two countries uh, because of that uh, whole host of repercussions. But if we had uh, world, the World Trade Center event happening every two hours, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, that would be roughly a million deaths. And it would be, that's what we're looking at from structural violence. Uh, it's always important to operationalize these uh, kind of vague statistical concepts in the, into more meaningful uh, things people can relate to. When you're trying to explain uh, these issues, the, the structural issues that lead to declining health and, and you know, just the problems with health in, in broader populations, I, I think some people have trouble thinking in those terms because we live in a society where we're primed uh, to think, oh, everything is down to the individual. Uh, you know, if you get sick, it's your fault. It's your individual choice. What do you do when you have to confront that with, uh, I guess, people who think in these terms of, oh, it's all up to the individual. Like, what is your response to the people that that maybe don't think as structurally about these matters? So I um, I try to point out that, first of all, personal behaviors don't matter that much. That's a hard sell because we all believe in, you know, we've been taught since we we're little kids, you know, wash your hands after you go to the bathroom and uh, uh, dress warmly and eat right and, uh, and don't hit other people. Those are personal behaviors. If we look at populations, you then find paradoxes. The longest lived country in the world is Japan, has been since 1978. If we look at the proportion of men that smoke in Japan, it's about 45%. So about almost half of Japanese men smoke. About 15% of American men smoke. So something doesn't compute there. Namely, here the longest lived country has three times the proportion of men smoking. Uh, I used to quip to my students, uh, the reason that it doesn't kill them is they don't inhale. Um, but, <laughs> but that's, of course, not true. Uh, and, and so you have to understand the country as the patient, as the entity you want to look at to understand what produces health. So why is, why is it that Japan can be the longest lived country in the world, despite having such a high proportion of men uh, who carry on an odious, unhealthy behavior. 
Well, my way of answering that question is, is to look at another important factor that determines health. And uh, I use the metaphor, do you ever see a lone Japanese tourist? Say before COVID, if you see you know, Japanese tourists come here, do you ever see a single Japanese tourist, a tourist by themselves? No, they're always together, right? Do you ever see a lone American tourist? All the time. So they do things together. They have this cultural concept of wa or social harmony. And the harmony in the group is more important than your own personal feelings. Your hone are your own personal feelings and tatamai are the feelings of the group. And so you suppress, you know, we, we want, we do something, they do something that we consider bad. You know, you don't want to suppress your own feelings. You want to let it all hang out here, but they do. And that leads to better, to better health. And so, there are many studies on social factors affecting health, and and they point out, just as I have said, they matter more than personal behaviors. They matter more than medical care. Um, social factors are are the good good social relationships among friends and family are the glue that makes you healthy. If we could, could we talk a little bit about, uh, you know, there's authors like. Um... Thomas Piketty that have dealt with the issue of, of how sort of the modern capitalist society affects us uh, on a psychological level. You're sort of dealing with the side of that of um, just health in general. Uh, so maybe we can talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the way that stress is a killer in our sort of fast paced um, society and the effect that that has on our health, this sort of um, society that induces stress because we're also atomized and individualistic that, you know, it, it's you know, slowly killing us. Yes, it is. Uh, I call stress the 21st century tobacco. You know, we don't smoke much anymore. And, uh, and only the poor smoke, and they smoke to try and cope with the stress of being poor. Um, so what is the stress response? Uh, well, it, it's a part of our evolutionary adaptation to get out of trouble. You know, you're crossing the street and suddenly you see a car veering down and you run to get to the other side of the street. And if you don't run fast enough, you, uh, that's it. Um, so what happens when you see that car coming down? Well, your um, heart starts to pump faster. You breathe faster to get more oxygen into the blood that are going to the muscles that are going to save your life as you run across the street. You just had breakfast and you don't want to be wasting your energy digesting that breakfast, so you turn digestion off. Maybe you had a, a, a cut somewhere and your body was repairing it. Hey, you know, you got to save your life, cut off tissue repair. So your stress response is programmed to get you out of a trouble. And once you get out of trouble, you know, you your heart starts and it stops pounding. Uh, you, you've been sweating. Uh, you stop breathing so quickly and you take a, uh, a life-giving sigh of relief. But not many of us face those kinds of stresses anymore. What are we stressed about today? 
Well, uh, a lot of stresses that are economic, you know, uh, am, am I gonna, am I gonna uh, have my home foreclosed because I can't keep up with the mortgage payments? Uh, is my kid gonna come home with a bad report from the parole officer? Uh, am, is the check in the mail? Uh, if my significant other comes home and he's, he's had a bad day at the office, is he gonna beat me? I mean, these worries really are the modern day stresses and we don't we don't turn them off they're there consistently so i think about my students uh, and and they worry a lot they have very high levels of anxiety so i i'm teaching a course now the health of populations the patient is the country just as we've been talking about and i do a a class on stress and I ask them how stressed they are from very stressed to not so stressed. And they, they're pretty stressed. And I ask them what the biggest stress is. You know, there are these poll everywhere um, uh, apps that they can log into. And what they say is displayed to everybody else. And the biggest stress is always money. That is, most of them have rather substantial debts just to go to school and uh you know student debt is supposed to number in the trillions so it's not inconsequential and these students face it if they were in other countries you know all, all education is free that's another example of structural violence if you have uh high costs for education and you make the students bear that cost instead of society, that's a huge stressor. So I'm curious, uh, because you brought up the issue of smoking, I will be honest, I am a smoker. Uh, so when we're dealing with uh, things like smoking or just uh, individual behaviors uh, that, that may be uh, unbeneficial to us, how, how do we deal with those things in terms of a social context, if that makes sense? Well, uh, um, depend on friends and family and personal relationships. You will find old smokers. They, you know, only a certain fraction of people die from smoking related diseases. And those that don't uh, haven't been very well studied in the United States. Um, but in Japan, the, the example I use, um, you seem to be able to get away with smoking. So I tell people, if you want to smoke, be born in Japan. But in your situation, since you probably weren't, um, there might be, we don't know, but there might be some health benefit of moving to a country with a different culture. You know, Japan is really different that way. You know, I, I've spent some time in Japan to try and understand it. Uh, they have signs painted in crowded cities on the sidewalks telling you to not smoke. You got to smoke inside. I mean, <laughs> they do all, you know, I, I tell my students, Japan breaks all the rules that we think are really important. And, yeah, and why it, it sounds like it's a much more... Um, cooperative culture, like the, the the individual is not the be all end all. That's not to say the, right. that you know that's an individual right. doesn't matter at all, but like they're not, you know, the, the be all end all. Yeah, that's right. 
And they have this idea of um, emotional attachment to their mother. Amai is sort of the Japanese term. And I you know, had discussions with Japanese men in their 50s and 60s, and they always liked to talk about their mother and how nurturing that relationship was. So, you know, a part of the book is uh, uh, looking at early life. And I make the statement, early life lasts a lifetime. And what do I mean by that? Well, as we go from the erection to the resurrection, it's the first thousand days after conception when roughly half of our health as adults is programmed. And what do I mean by that? Well, you spend your first nine months in, in, in utero and you get signals from your mother through hormones of what the outside world is going to be like. I call it the womb with a view uh, uh, perspective. Namely, the fetus is scanning the outside world to see whether it's hostile, uh, you know, and they've got to uh, program their physiology so that when they're born, they can, they can battle the, the adversaries in order to survive to reproduce. We're only here from an evolutionary perspective for one purpose to reproduce so the species doesn't die out. So in, so in early life, we will make compromises to survive to reproduce. And those compromises will lead to pretty well all the chronic conditions we have as we age. Diabetes, hypertension, heart attacks, hormonal cancers, lung disease, kidney, kidney disease. Those are compromises made in early life to survive, to reproduce. Now, this was kind of a, well, the Greeks knew this 2,500 years ago in their writings. But in the scientific literature, it's only emerged in the last 50 or so years, the importance of early life. And, uh, and so in Japan, the concept of uh, the secure attachment to a parental figure, typically the mother, really matters. Yeah, John, I, I was going to say really quickly, not to interrupt you, but, you know, I've, I've seen studies where that, that say that, you know, if you have a uh, attachment with your family that, that feels caring, you view the, less, the world as less hostile than someone that may have less of an attachment. Very important. The, the idea of secure attachment was studied um, by John Bowlby, a British psychiatrist looking at orphans in the Second World War. And he found that orphans who were uh, paired with a single uh, parental figure, typically a woman, uh, in the first year of life, uh, were had better health than those that were cared for by many different people. So I, I typically ask uh, people to, you know, can you, can you visualize the eyes of your mother? Typically the mother, though uh, today it can often be the father. And, you know, those people can, and, and, and that's a, a sense of comfort. So people who are securely attached in early life can explore their environment knowing that there's a, safe haven to come back to. Now, you can take adults and do an attachment interview 
Mary Ainsworth extended John Bowlby's work to uh, uh, to discover attachment styles in adulthood that are uh, related to attachment styles in early life. And we have studies showing that securely attached adults with diabetes, for example, have lower mortality rates from diabetes. So, you know, if you look at the scientific literature, as I point out in the book, uh, it validates whatever I say. I'm, I'm not going to say something that I can't find strong scientific validation for. So in regards to the pandemic, what is your sort of analysis of the pandemic? And most importantly, going back to the title of the book, what are the biggest lessons we can learn from the pandemic? So let's start with something uh, that relates to uh, what I did yesterday. Uh, I try to reach as many different audiences as I can with this message. And for some 20 years or so, I've been doing a class to midwives, that is people uh, who are going to deliver babies and care for pregnant uh, uh, women. And, uh, and, I, and I titled the class Social Midwifery. And uh, one of the things, and so what are important outcomes in early life? One is whether you were born preterm or not. The more stress your mother faces, the more racism your mother faces, the more likely you are to be born uh, before 37 weeks. The other factor is birth weight. Uh, again, if you're stressed in utero, you're going to pop out soon and you're not going to develop all your organs and you'll have a low birth weight. So in relation to COVID, I showed them a study that I discussed in which they looked at uh, adults with severe COVID, hospitalized for COVID, and they looked at their birth weights. This was a large study in Spain. And if you were born of low birth weight, COVID uh, really affected you much more severely. So that's relating early life conditions to adult uh, disease with COVID. Uh, a study in the, uh, in the United States looking at mortality rates from COVID among states, among U.S. states, showed that the states with the highest income inequality had the highest mortality rates. Similarly, a study of 83, 84 countries showed the same thing. Countries with more income inequality had higher mortality rates. Some of this devolves to, you know, what does a high inequality society do to the individuals? Well, they become less trusting, less trusting of one another and less trusting of the government. And trust in, in the American government is sort of at an all-time low right now. And, and I, I could say we have a very dysfunctional political system. Uh, and so inequality really patterns that. And so we see it in deaths from COVID. Uh, we see it in more low birth weight babies now, and the COVID effects are going to affect us later in life. In other words, if we go back to the 1918 uh, so-called Spanish flu pandemic, those who were born during the pandemic had compromised adult health. 
And I think we can probably say something similar will happen with COVID. It's a, so yes, there are many lessons to learn from COVID. Um, our response was a disaster. I mean, we have the most deaths of any country, 1.1 million so far. And if you divide by the population to get rates, uh, we're in the top 10 countries by rates. So we haven't done very well. I would say our country has failed in COVID. It's interesting because you mentioned how our health compares in America to other countries and their health. Uh, you mentioned Japan. I think you also mentioned a few other countries such as, um, I, I believe, Sweden and Norway. Could you talk about maybe how a country like Sweden or Norway is different in terms of health than the U.S.? Okay, so um, first of all, they live longer lives. Their mortality rates are considerably less, and they have social policies in place. For example, uh, there are only two countries in the world that don't give a working woman who's pregnant paid time off after she has her baby. One is, of course, the United States, and the other is Papua New Guinea, half of a big island north of Australia. Only two countries in the world with populations of a million or more that don't have a national policy for paid maternity leave. Uh, you know, we passed the Family Medical Leave Act in 1993 that gives a working woman who's pregnant working for a company with 50 or more employees and has worked there uh, for a year or more, four months of unpaid leave. You know, nobody can afford that unless you're really well off. So most, you know, most women go back to work in a couple of weeks of giving birth. They have to. So how's it different in Sweden? In Sweden, you get 444 days of paid maternity, paid parental leave at your full pay. And the father has to take 13 weeks. So more than a year of paid leave at full pay. And then for the rest of the second year, the leave is optional only at 70% of your pay. Then in your, and then in your third year, your child's third year, child is now three years old, you can put your child in a Swedish government-run daycare that's free. And the requirements to work in a Swedish government-run daycare is that you have to have an advanced degree in play. Why would that be? Well, the kid is now three years old and you want to socialize the, the child to um, get along well with other children and you need experts there. And, um, you know, what's, what are our daycare requirements? Well, first of all, they're expensive and, uh, and you have to work at minimum wage or less in, in daycare. So you get what you pay for. So the Swedish government spends more money on the first year of life, more government money than in any subsequent year. We don't spend much money on early life. We spend it on teenagers for remedial actions when they're uh, failing. That's the wrong priority. So that, that's one example in Sweden. And how does Sweden do it? Well, Sweden has high tax rates. 
much, much higher than in the United States. And Swedish people feel fine with that because they get really good services. Of course, uh, free medical care at point of delivery. Here's the United States, you know, we have the most expensive healthcare system in the world. We spend almost half of the world's medical care bills in this country, and we still have 50 or, or 100 million people with a lack of insurance or inadequate or inadequate insurance. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Uh, we shouldn't, we certainly don't get what we, uh, we don't, we don't get health for all the money we spend on health care. So this leads me into an interesting area uh, that I wanted to discuss with you, which is, you know, I, I think when we look some of these other countries that we've talked about, like Sweden or Japan, there is a sense of social responsibility. And what I always hear from people um, who say, well, you can't really compare the U.S. to those countries because those countries just have a completely different culture and we're not going to be like that. Our, our country can't change its culture. Like, so, so why even compare these things? So how do you respond to people that say uh, that we can't have those kind of, I guess, um, cultural attitudes that, that our own sort of individualism is too entrenched? How do you sort of um, maybe push back on that a little bit? So I ask them to consider history. Uh, and sometimes I show them the front page of the New York Times, April 28th, 1942. And the lead headline was $25,000 income limit asked by president. So in 1942, President Roosevelt proposed a 100% tax on all incomes above $25,000. Now, that didn't pass Congress. Uh, a 94% tax passed. That's pretty close to 100. That was raised to 96% in 1946. And in the 1950s, the highest tax rate was 91%. And it gradually got lowered down to be somewhere in the 30s today. There wasn't a revolution when Roosevelt proposed uh, taxing the rich. And $25,000 in 1942 is about $450,000 today, and many of us could live on that if we had to. So Roosevelt and his New Deal legislation reflected the values then, namely, we shouldn't have people be too rich, and we and with the Social Security and jobs corporation and jobs programs, people should have meaningful work and they should have a minimum wage. You know, these were all American values at that time. So the American values were those of community and helping one another. And so that has been subverted to our current situation where we can't let the rich be rich enough. Let's give them everything. That was Reaganomics in the 1980s. Let's I was going to say, not not just give them everything, but also, you know, when it comes to people living in lower income areas, you have uh, cases where, you know, I, I've studied the, the whole issue of forever chemicals. Uh, those affect lower income areas. Uh, pollution affects lower income areas more than the rich. So we actually literally... Uh, in concrete examples, can see the ways in which uh, those on the lower income bracket are treated very differently than the wealthy. 
Absolutely. We blame poor people for being poor. They didn't work hard enough. They didn't stay in school long enough. And so they deserve their outcomes. So uh, poorer people have poorer health. And that is a very important concept, health measured variously. And as the example I often use for that is uh, a survival on the Titanic. When the big ship went down, if you had a first-class ticket, 60% survived. If you had a second-class ticket, 44% survived. If you were a third-class or crew, a quarter survived. So the lesson there, always travel first-class on the Titanic. But it's true in, in our society. You know, we, the rich have a free ride and, uh, and the poor go to prison. I mean, we have the highest incarceration rates of any country in the world. Think about that. Almost uh, a quarter of the world's prisoners are in the United States, about one in a hundred. And if you're African-American man in your 20s, it's about one in 10. So racism read, uh, uh, presents its ugly head. And it's no surprise, this is Black History Month. And uh, uh, black liberation struggles are what we should recognize and, you know, the black situation comes about from our history of slavery. And we have studies showing that there's intergenerational transmission of health from the slave era. So uh, the African-Americans today have the second worst health outcomes in the country. American Indians have the worst. And we can trace the African-American health outcomes to conditions they faced during slavery. So whose responsibility is the poor health status of both American Indians and African-Americans? I would offer it's you and I who uh, inherited the wealth that came from the uh, all the uh, uh, exploitation done by slavery. So what's our response? Well, uh, William Doherty uh, at Duke University uh, has a formula for reparations. We need to repair for the sins of our forefathers. And he suggests taking uh, those slave, uh, those who had slave ancestors and taxing the rich and redistributing wealth so that they they come into the uh, same level of 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 wealth as white people and there's a huge difference you know um, black uh, black american wealth is almost zero and white wealth the median white wealth is somewhere around one hundred eighty thousand dollars so we need to care care for one another, share, redistribute, and repair for the sins of our forefathers. So in what ways would all of us benefit, whether you're you're on the higher end of, of the wealth spectrum or the lower end, uh, how would all of us benefit from taking a more cooperative approach just in general to our culture and our life and politics? How would that help us in the long run with our health, regardless of where we are again on that sort of spectrum of wealth? So, as I said, the uh, if we take our so the, you'd think, boy, I I want to be rich. I want to be a billionaire. Remember, there's that song by I forget who it was. 
I want to be a billionaire. <laughs> um, the billionaires don't live that long. That is, if being if having so much wealth was so good for you, surely if we looked at the billionaire class, they would be the longest lived. But you know, Steve Jobs didn't exactly live very long, and uh, many others I could go on and name. Um, yes, they live longer than the poorest people, but in comparison to people in other countries, no, they don't make it. So the selling point of decreasing inequality is that everything would be better for the for all of us, and. Take, for example, I mentioned mass shootings earlier. Uh, mass shootings are a common occurrence, and they occur in situations where there's a large income gap and large wealth. So if you're in that kind of a situation, you know, you're, you're being put down by those with large wealth, and you get stressed out and frustrated, so you take your AR-15 and and go out and vent those frustrations. I mean, that's and mass shootings have been increasing in the last few years, uh, almost exponentially. So and <laughs> yes, uh, if you're a rich person in your gated community and never go out, maybe you won't be victim of a mass shooting. But there are quite a few who've been um, killed in their cars as they're driving by. It's yeah, I, I was going to say real quick, it's interesting you mentioned the whole thing of, of gated communities not going outside much when you have that much wealth. One thing that I've always found interesting is, um, you know, w when you get to a certain level of wealth, in a weird way, you become more isolated. Uh, you know, I've been to the hills in, in Hollywood and you see the people at the highest, you know, parts of the hills, it, it would take them like an hour just to get out of their, yes. you know, um, yeah. house or whatever, you know. Uh, right. So it, it's weird because I think in a lot of ways, the wealthier uh, very isolated by their own wealth. And that can't be good for one's like mental health and in turn their own health. I mean, I think there's a connection between, you know, uh, mental health and physical health. Very much so. And uh, there's a, a link between, for example, income inequality and rates of depression among countries. Schizophrenia follows that as well. So uh, again, not unsurprisingly, United States has among the most mental illness of, of all countries. And that has to do, again, with our high stress levels, our inability to cope, uh, not leaving our gated communities. There's a, a little British cartoon about uh, somebody trying to leave the gated community and they're being pushed back in. No, you can't come out. <laughs> um, it's a very dysfunctional society that we live in. And I uh, I would say America is driving you crazy. Just a few more brief questions here, if you have the time. Uh, I like that you have a, a whole chapter entitled, Our Health Depends on Our Political Choices. Maybe you could uh, explain what you mean by that. What do we mean when we say that our political choices affect our health? So, um, you know, I, I don't want to say something that isn't sort of put out there by other reputable uh, uh, entities. So our longest lived state and uh, is Hawaii. And the Department of Health in Hawaii uh, issued a report some years back, 
with a graphic that's on one of the pages in the book of a mountainside. It's on page two of their report on health disparities and social determinants of health. And the graphic, uh, I could hold it up, but it's got a, a, a mountainside, which is a typical scene in Hawaii. And there's a ridge up, up above. Uh, from the pass, there's a waterfall pouring down, and then it leads into a river that flows into the ocean. In the ocean are all the chronic diseases there in their graphic that we suffer from. Diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, lung disease. So Hawaii situates these disease conditions down in the water. On the shore, on one side of the river, are our personal behaviors, inactivity, obesity, smoking, those things. On the other side of the river is health care. Then as you go up towards the waterfall, where the waterfall is streaming down, on both sides of the waterfall are pollution, poverty, racism, education, what are called now the social determinants of health. Much more important things than personal behaviors and healthcare, uh, which are far downstream. And then at the top, they call it Mauka, to the, to the, to the mountain. Uh, above the social determinants waterfall is socioeconomic conditions. And then above that, political context and governance. So Hawaii says political, political context and governance, that's a fancy way of saying politics, matter most in producing health. So does our healthiest state know something that nobody else knows? No, <laughs> the scholarship on that is, uh, is huge. And, and, and what does it mean, politics? Well, <laughs> we can talk about politics for, uh, uh, for many hours, but politics is the ability to tell others what to do. You know, it's, it's a representation of power. And in our democracy, our nominal democracy, we control uh, the political situation, and we could put people in power who would make us healthy again. I say healthy again, because back in the 1950s, measured by life expectancy, we were one of the longest lived countries in the world. Remember, that was a time when the tax rates were 91%. We were one of the more equal countries in the world. So, so we, were we do have examples from, you know, not, not that much of a distant history ago uh, that can show us a way forward. Yes. Yeah. I mean, all we have to do. So what did we do in the 1950s? Well, we taxed the rich and then somehow we decided that was a bad thing. Let's not tax the rich and we pay for it with uh, the ultimate price, really. So I, I don't think we need to do something that's radical um, outside of the scope of American history. It's something we did before work back then. Why couldn't it work now? But recognizing that health is political, it represents the political choices we've made, a how much to uh, tax the wealthy or our tax structure and how to spend 
what we gain from taxation on what part of life. If we spend it on Social Security for people my age, it's not going to help us very much. But if we spend it on uh, on early life, so pregnant women have paid time off to parent or pregnant persons, however we look at it, that's good for everybody. So it's it's really kind of simple, but how do we create awareness that this is what is necessary? And that's what the last chapter is about. You know, I've been teaching courses in this for over 20 years, and I have a lot of things that I have my students do to create awareness. And I've sort of summarized a lot of those in the last chapter. So in terms of going forward, what are, I mean, ta uh, taxing the rich, what are some of the prescriptions you would give for dealing with these issues, just to get more concrete with it? So let's, um, well, first of all, we spend half of the world's health care bill on medical care in this country. Uh, that's a whole other issue. Medical care doesn't do that much to produce health. But there's a great demand for medical care. And so people who have no access feel really slighted. They're mostly poor, and it's not good for their health. At the government level, we already spend more money per person on health care than any other country that has universal health care spends in total. So we already pay for universal health care. Let's just operationalize it. Um, you know, Medicare for all or single payer. There's a variety of terms out there. What I find kind of striking among my students is that they feel a sense of resistance to having everybody have access to health care because they say, well, won't that mean that there are going to be long waiting lines to get to see a doctor or get into the hospital? Well, yes, there may be. Um, <laughs> but if you're poor, there won't be any line because you won't have any opportunity to have access to health care. So enact a universal health care program uh, would be the first thing. All the other rich countries have universal health care programs, and they realize, because they do, that that still doesn't decrease the effect of inequality on health. Studies show having a focus on primary care, you know, family practice doctors, uh, is, is actually does work to produce health, but we have a strong specialist focus. And so we need to sort of change that and recognize that primary care is the most effective part of healthcare. Uh, then we need to recognize that we have to spend money on early life. Let Papua New Guinea be the only country without a paid parental leave program. You know, we can learn from other countries, but that's very un-American. The idea of American exceptionalism, you know, we're the best country in the world and we tell others what to do. There's nothing we can learn from them. There's an Institute of Medicine report published in 2013 with the title, I mentioned it in the book, U.S. Health in International Perspective, Shorter Lives, Poorer Health. The title says it everything. It says everything. 
I always tell my students, craft titles that say everything uh, in the hopes of enticing the reader. Compared to other countries, we have shorter lives and poorer health. What does the report say to do? You know, the Institute of Medicine is this uh, federally funded uh, think tank. It's now called the National Academies of Medicine, uh, a small name change. But it says, uh, look at other countries to see what they're doing to produce health that would be of use here. And those factors, of course, would include attending to early life uh, and, and such other things. Universal health care, uh, foster more uh, cooperative relationships rather than the individualist focus. And I would offer in, in the modern era, our social media is, is distracting us from working together. How to change that is a tough sell, but to begin with, recognize that we have a new commodity that social media has produced. You, surveillance capitalism, who you are, what you're looking at, what you bought, whether you're pregnant or not, um, your whole history now is available to the uh, to the big four or five uh, high tech companies, and they sell that. So I, I and that that brings us into the business of the media. Any business has a buyer, a seller, and a product. So let's take. Uh, um, social media, who's the buyer, who's the seller, what's the product? Well, you don't pay any, I, and I tell my students, follow the money. You don't pay anything to be on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok, so you can't be the buyer. Who's the buyer? Where does money change hands? Well, it's the advertisers. Right, and we're the product in a way. Yeah. Yeah, they're the buyers. And what are they buying? Us. We are the product sold by the ad, by the uh, social media firms uh, to the advertisers. Once you realize that, it changes your whole perspective of how society runs, and it's not good for our health. The very last thing I wanted to ask you was, you know, I have listeners from all over the ideological spectrum. Um, I myself lean a lot more leftward. Um, but I also have the occasional uh, libertarian or conservative listener. And I think uh, the sort of libertarian and conservative viewpoint when you start talking about public health is, um, well, health is your responsibility. And I think there's this weird fear. They they seem to think that if you uh, start talking about public health, uh, things will become more authoritarian. You know, oh, uh, are they going to tell me not to smoke? Are they going to tell me not to eat fast food or you know, I think they have these um, fears about, oh, well, if it's not all on the individual, then it'll become, you know, this dystopian uh, sort of nightmare, at least in their mind, right? So how do you sort of respond uh, to those, like, maybe libertarians or conservatives that they, they hear public health and they just maybe freak out about it a little bit? Like, how, how would you address them and say, hey, maybe look at it this way instead? So would you rather live a longer, healthier life or a shorter, sicker one? And if we look at 
U.S. states now, okay, so let's take the U.S. state as the patient, and we look at uh, state life expectancy, how long people live, and follow it from 1958 to 2017. If we look at conservative states, states with more libertarian policies versus liberal states, states with more liberal governments, uh, the liberal states have seen a continuous increase in life expectancy, and the conservative states, their life expectancy has sort of flatlined around 1970s. That is, they're not seeing health improvements. Forget that in the last few years, we're actually seeing declines in life expectancy, but liberal policies such as education, abortion, civil rights, incarceration, uh, those policies lead to longer, healthier lives. So, you know, the science is there. It's just that it's hard to get a lot of Americans to believe in science and, and to believe facts. I mean, uh, if you look at surveys, about a quarter of Americans think the sun goes around the earth. I mean, look, it rises over here and sets over there. So it must be going. I mean, this is this is what people say they believe. A large proportion of millennials think the earth is flat. And among countries, we have uh, in a study published in science uh, some years ago, the lowest proportion of people believing in evolution. You know, we believe in creationism. So you can find whatever beliefs you have, you can now find verification in various forums on social media. So trying to get people in this country to use critical thinking skills to determine the facts. I mean, changing your mind is one of the best ways, trying to change your mind is one of the best ways of figuring out whether you still have one or not. And many people's minds have ossified and they, they're not going to change. I, I like the way you put that. Uh, just real quick comment on what you, what you just had to say. Uh, that, you know, it's important uh, sometimes to change your mind and adjust your views based on the evidence. Because I think, I think we live in a moment, especially in this age where everyone's concerned about their own branding of themselves, that they feel as if, uh, you know, if they change their minds instead of doubling down on what their view, whatever their view is, they feel like they're going to be perceived as dumb uh, when really I think it's the opposite. I think we should always be sort of uh, adjusting our operating system in terms of how we think. I agree very much. Yes, you said it well. Our operating system. So <laughs> who controls our operating system? It, it's, the, you know, it, it's politics. I mean, um, we are indoctrinated in various ways. When you go to school, suppose in, so I've, I've, taken these ideas down to as low as grade five. So you can go into a grade five classroom and talk about these ideas and the students get it. So um, I was once in a, in a, in this case, a grade eight classroom talking about some of these ideas and the students were confused. So I stopped and I said, how do you come to know something is true? There was silence. You know how uncomfortable silence is. You, you want to break it. But I stayed the silence. Finally, a boy raised his hand and said, if our parents tell us when we're very young, 
if our teachers and friends reinforce it, and if we've experienced it, then we know it to be true. That's profound. That, that's uh, epistemology in a nutshell. Epistemology, the science of uh, deciding what's so or not. So you need uh, ideas planted in early life by your parents. You need reinforcement by those that you respect and spend time with. And then you need experience. And when it comes to population health ideas, the, time, the things I've been talking about, you can't get experience without looking at data. In other words, in this country, we compile when everybody's born, the date, and we compile the date of death. And so that allows you to compile mortality statistics, and they don't lie. But you have to develop, you have to have the facility to explore these statistics in order to have the experience. So I do this in my classes. In the first class, the students are given country cards and an indicator and they sort them without the internet. And then they come back on the second day and they present to the class what the internet showed the sort to be. So instead of my telling them all these things, they find out for themselves and present it to the others. So that's one way how to, to create situations where people can gain experience. Well, Stephen Bezruchka, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. If there was one thing that you would hope my listeners get out of this conversation, or if they pick up the book, what do you want them to get out of the book and the conversation we've been having? I sometimes tell people, if health is important to you, and you've listened to me, and your beliefs have been challenged, don't believe me. Find out for yourself. See whether what I've said, you can verify. And if you can't, then discount it. But if you can, um, then tell it to others and broadcast it. So this is an opportunity for people to whom health is important to try and uh, see if their beliefs are validated by facts. Facts are something that many people are afraid of, false facts uh, and deep fakes and all of that. But arise above that and try to uh, critically understand what's going on in health production. And don't die too young. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Stephen Bezruchka. And that you'll check out his book, Inequality Kills Us All, COVID-19's Health Lessons for the World. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. Parallax Views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it. 
got to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like right. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.